Thanks for listening to the Henry Center Podcast. We seek to bridge the gap between the academy and the church by cultivating resources and communities that advance Christian wisdom. If you'd like to learn more about the Henry Center, please visit our website at henrycenter.org. There, you can find hundreds of articles, videos, and publications which promote theological understanding. The best way to stay connected with us is to subscribe to our newsletter, though you can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. If you're able, we'd love to see you at one of our upcoming events, hosted at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Our public lectures feature scholars and pastors offering careful reflection on a range of biblical, theological, and ecclesial topics. We hope you enjoy today's discussion. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So starts the most famous, the most published, the most controversial book in the history of the world. And in Hebrew, uh, it was not originally written in English. Just make sure we're on the same page here. In Hebrew, it says, in the beginning or at the beginning. And, and the word, the first word you're going to find there is this word. If you can't read this, that's okay. You'll still hear. You can check this notes later. Bara, bara. Say that with me. Bara. Bara. Yes, in the beginning. It's, it's, a, it's a strong Hebrew verb that means to create, to create. But here's the thing. Um, the English word create, uh, well, God creates things, you know, trees and rocks and sky and sea. And, and we create things like, you know, houses and companies and um, nachos and whatever it may be. We create, God creates. But bara, bara is not that word. Bara is a word that is only ever used of God. See, God creates and we create, and it's, it's something different. When God creates, he creates something in a way that that thing, that existence, that meaning is actually part of reality itself. Like, that thing is dependent on God. God brought in the beginning, brought Elohim. Elohim. In the beginning, who brought Elohim brought Elohim. Now, this is a Funny, funny word. This is the name or title for God throughout this passage. But here's the thing, here's the thing. And, and in Hebrew, um, it's not multiple gods who created. We all know that. It's, there's one creator God in the Old Testament. Clearly, over and over again, behold, the Lord our God, the Lord, he is one. Right? And yet, and yet, and yet, in Hebrew, if you want to make, uh, if you want to make a noun plural, you add an Im ending, I am. And here we have one creator God who his name is in plural form. One God who's plural in form. Now that's, that's funny. In the beginning, bara Elohim, and then heavens and earth, which is just a very, very Hebrew way of saying everything. Rocks and trees and skies and stars and little wiener dogs and crawly, creepy things and things that grow in your hair and gross things and things in your stomach and things at the bottom of the ocean. Everything God created. Everything. What a fascinating way to start a book that claims to be written by God. What a fascinating way to write a book that claims to be written for every tribe and every tongue and every nation. What a fascinating way to, to write a book 
that claims to be by God for every tribe and tongue and nation and to last for all time, that this book will remain until heaven and earth disappear. Which, which if we're understanding this even partially correctly here, this means that the first few chapters of Genesis are positioned to explain the origin, the order, and the purpose of everything to all people in all times. So just imagine you're given the task in a few pages, a few chapters, to tell a story that explains the origin, purpose, meaning of everything to all people in all times. Like, uh, how do you even start such a thing, right? Like, if you're trying to explain God, purpose, humanity, marriage, life, death, good, evil, in a way that speaks to an ancient Near Eastern Bronze Age sheep herder and a modern business professional, what story would you tell? If you're trying to, to tell a story that's going to apply to ancient Chinese and to medieval peasants, if you're trying to tell a story that is going to communicate something to a spear-wielding like African tribal chief and a and an iPhone-wielding mom in skinny jeans, like how how are you going to do that? What type of story would you tell? And yet, and yet, is it even possible to tell a story that's going to speak to? All people and all time, and yet here it is. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So, of course, um, we and our modern tribe, our our modern, educated suburbanite tribe, we um, we feel the absence in this passage. There's something. There's a glaring mistake here. There's something clearly wrong. That this text, if you search the whole thing, you're not going to find a mention of science, not even once. It's shocking, I I know, I know. In our day, in our time, in our tribe, we speak a language in which we simply don't know how to even talk about origins, meaning we don't know how to talk about origins apart from science. Now, never mind the fact that this book was written 3,000 years before modern science. To mention the origin of science in our world is to call upon that great cloud of witnesses like Descartes and Newton and Hawkins and Einstein and Bill Nye, the science guy. Right? That's what we talk about when we talk about it. And yet this text, it completely ignores them. They're not even a footnote. This text is entirely, utterly focused on one, on Elohim. He is the only actor. He's the only agent, the subject of every verb. God speaks, God separates, God names, God blesses, God declares a good 35 times in 34 verses. God, 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 God. And not once are you going to find a mention of the space-time continuum. Exotic subparticles, speciation, 3.75 billion years of cosmological evidence. Not once are you going to find that. Instead, what we find is what? In the beginning, God created, and he saw, and he said, and it was good. And he said, and he saw, and it was good. And he said, and he saw, and it was good. Like, you can almost dance to it. It's so nice, right? There's a rhythm. There's a pattern. Like, everything about it. Like, you know what the next line's going to say before you get there, because there's something to it. The text moves, and it flows. It's like a song or poem or something, which leaves us wondering, what in the world is this? 
Like, what are we supposed to do with this? If this is truly a story for all people and all times that explains the origins and the purpose and the meaning of everything, well, then that means it's for us too. So how are we supposed to make sense of this ancient story in our modern scientific age? So I um, I have a course that I teach from time to time called How to Study the Bible. It's Five-week course, but it's crammed in there. It really should be longer. And, but week three, we, we, it's called Context, Context, Context. All right, so when we come to the Bible, the Bible's an ancient book written in a foreign language to a tribal people in a faraway land. If we do not respect the difference between their culture and their context and ours, if you don't respect the context of the text you are reading, your interpretation likely says a lot more about you than it does about the text. All right? So the starting exercise that we do, and I, I want to do this right now in our congregation, is this. Now, now some of you have been here long enough. Uh, about four years ago, I did this, and then I've taught this class a couple times. So if you know the answer to this, don't, don't cheat. Don't tell your neighbor, all right? Don't ruin this for anyone. But what we're going to do, here's the exercise. We are going to look at a series of pictures, and I want you to interpret them based on the data you see. After you've studied them, I want you to turn to your neighbor and explain to them the meaning of the pictures, all right? Now, here's all I'm going to tell you. There's a place where people come from all over the world, and they stand in the streets, and they stand in the fields, and they reach their hands up to the sky. All right? Here's, here's your pictures for picture number one. Picture number two. Number three. Number four. And we'll leave it on this one. I love this girl. All right, let's turn the lights up for a minute. Everyone turn to your neighbor and try and interpret these pictures. What do these pictures mean? All right, have you made your guesses? Have you made your guesses? You ready for a hint? Okay, here's a big hint, big hint. Listen up closely. All of these people are standing in front of a famous landmark. Does that help? All right, all right. How about this? Does, does this help at all? Yeah, this one. This one's so sweet. If I just give you warm fuzzies. This one's probably my favorite, though. Let's just leave it right there. Uh, So all of these people are standing in this field or in the street in front of the Leaning Tower of Pisa, and they're holding up their hands. So, so, So here's the question. Here's the question. What's the point? Your perspective makes a huge difference in how you interpret something. If you are not looking at something from the right perspective or if you are missing cultural context, it might very well look meaningless, silly, or you might wildly misinterpret it, right? So here's my question coming in today as we come to this text. What if there is a way to look at the creation story from a different angle? What if we could walk around it and check it out from different perspectives? Might we find a way in which science and faith actually line up like two kids holding the Tower of Pisa? Is there a way that these don't necessarily have to conflict? Is it possible to be a modern, educated, scientifically modern suburbanite 
and believe that the Bible is the word of God. So in the next two weeks, we're going to talk about context, context, context. Today, we're going to talk about literary context. We're going to understand this as a piece of literature. And next week, we're going to talk about a broader ancient Near Eastern cultural context. And with that, let's go to the text. Genesis 1, if you have your Bibles, you might want to follow along today. I'm not going to put all the text up. Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 4. And the first thing we see when we come to this text is this. Immediately, we see that this section, this first section of Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 4, stands apart from every other part of the book of Genesis. It breaks between Genesis 2, 4 and 2, 5. It's a different style of writing. Like, you can actually see it in the English version. Like, the text itself has, like, endings. It's written not like normal text, but like poetry. In fact, when you go to Genesis 2 and following, you're going to find in that text, you're going to find listing of specific rivers, rivers that people at that time would have known, names, dates. It's written just like a historical record. Is it highly stylized? Yes, yes, it's a highly stylized record. But it's still, it's a historical record. But Genesis 1, it is not written like that. It is written like a poem or a song. So watch this. In the beginning, was the word. In the beginning, God created the, God bara Elohim, heavens and earth. God created the heavens and earth. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And he called the darkness night. And it was good. And there was evening and there was morning. The first day. So we have light and we have dark day one. And God said, let the waters above separate from the waters below. Let there be a vault that separates the waters. So God separated the waters above and he called them sky from the waters below the sea. And God saw that it was good. Well, let's go back one, one part. Before we miss, miss this context here, let me, let me insert one thing up here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's, there's a part, the second half of the verse that I skipped over here is, now the earth was formless and void. And this is just too fun to skip over right here. The earth was formless and void. So formless, this is um, in Hebrew you say, tohu vebohu. That's just too fun. We got to say this together. Tohu and bohu. Yeah, it sounds like a kid's game or something, but it's really actually terrible. Um, tohu and bohu. So tohu means means uh, formless or empty. It's the idea of this vast trackland of wasteland. It's In Job, it's used of this place where you go in and no one ever comes out alive. This place of trash and chaos. Bohu is emptiness, this empty, trackless wasteland. And, and it's described as like over the face of the deep, there's this darkness darkness, chaos. Like if you've read any other ancient Near Eastern literature, which I'm sure you all have, you expect right about now in the tohu, bohu, the watery chaos of darkness, you expect at any moment Godzilla to come up and eat you, right? This is terrible, terrible scene. And yet, and yet against that, we see in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And there's just tohu, ve bohu, and darkness over the deep. But the spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. In that, above that, is a spirit, the spirit of Elohim. The spirit of God hovers. That in the midst of this chaotic, terrible scene, God is there, 
and he's not afraid. He's, he's hovering, but hovering not like in the word that you would necessarily use. Like this, when we say the spirit of God hovers, we imagine kind of like this mist just hovering over the waters. This is the idea of a mother bird flying over her, over her little babies, her action, trying to teach them how to fly. The same word is used in Isaiah to, to say that, that hovering is this idea of caring, nurturing, that the word spirit could also be used as the breath of God, that this idea that over the chaotic waters, over this chaos, tohu and bohu, this darkness and this depth, there's, God is so close you can feel his breath. And he's hovering there like an overprotective parent. Just waiting. And then, and then, and so and we got ahead of ourselves. And then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And he separated the light from darkness. And there was evening and morning the first day. And it was good. And then God said, let the waters above and the waters below separate. So that he called the waters above where the rain comes down. He called that sky. And then there's waters below. And there was evening and there was morning the next day. And then God said... That the waters be gathered under the sky to one place so that dry land would appear. And so we see from the, the sea, the land appears. And then God says to the land, let the land produce. Let the vegetables vegetate, literally. So these vegetables come up and, and suddenly this green lush comes up out of the land and God saw it and it was good and it was good. And there was evening, there was morning the third day. And then God said, let there be lights in the sky. Now listen to these words. He says, let there be lights in the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark as sacred times, days, and nights. So God made the sun to govern the day and the moon to govern the night. And he also made stars. So on the fourth day, God says, let's make a sun and a moon and stars, and it was good. Which begs the question, we're four days into this, and he says specifically, I'm creating the sun so that it'll separate light from darkness, day from night, so you'll mark the days and the weeks and the months and times. So, so what does it mean that there were three days prior to the sun being created? So this, this is an old, old question. People have been pondering this for a long, long time. Last week I was reading an author and he says, and I quote, what kind of days were these? It's extremely difficult, perhaps impossible for us to conceive. That was St. Augustine. He wrote that 1,600 years ago. And God said, let the waters team, team with fish. And teeming with fish and all kinds of sea creatures and, and great whites and, and sharks and, and octopuses and squids and all kinds of things. And let, the, let the, the airs be filled with flying things, birds of the air and birds of prey and all kinds of creatures. And God did this and it was good. And there was evening and morning the fifth day. And then God said, let there be creatures, living creatures on the land. Right? He says, let there be living creatures and cattle and the, the kind of things that crawl and swarm on the ground. And let there be, the, let there be sloths to climb the trees and monkeys and chimpanzees and 3,500 types of, 3,500,000 5, types of beetles on the ground. So God made, this of course is a sheep. And this of course is a dog. And then God saw that it was good, but then he said, plural. 
let us make man in our own image. So in the image of God, he made them male and female, right? So on that day, and God looked back over everything that he had made, light and sky and land and 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 stars and sun and moon and fish and birds and, and plants and animals. And he said it was not just good, but it was very good. So it's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's very good. Very good. And then on the seventh day, unlike any other day, God rested. And this day is just Unlike any other, it says, Thus the heavens and earth were completed in their vast array. By the seventh day, God, Elohim, had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all of his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because he had rested from all the work of creating that he had done. So it begins with Barah, Elohim, the heavens and earth. And then it finishes with a capstone where it says, Ah, and the heavens and earth were completed. Elohim was done with his work. Everything was Barah. So it begins this way and ends this way with a capstone above and a capstone below. And here we have the final story of this this image. What a fascinating story that is designed to speak to all people and all times and tell them the meaning and origin and purpose of all things. Now, if you take this one step deeper, and people have for centuries and centuries and centuries, patterns start to emerge, pretty, pretty obvious patterns. Um, the sun goes in the day, and the stars and moon, where do they go? At, at night, yeah. And birds go in the sky, yeah, birds go in the sky, and fish go in the yeah, and all these creatures and animals, they, they live on the land, including humans, and they eat vegetables. So you see this pattern immediately start to, to pop out, that there's this same shape above and below this text, and that God is somehow matching day one, matches with day four, and day two matches with day six, and day three matches with, or day two matches with day five, and day three matches with day six. And you see this pattern emerge that it's not just one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, but it's one, two, three. Four, five, six, and it's one, four, two, five, three, six, and then seven. That these days are forming a pattern. And as they looked at it, the ancients, since, since, I mean, at least 200 BC, Jews and Christians later saw this and they said, this, this all has to do with tohu. That it's, it's formless. So God, so the first three days, God is creating form. And this has to do with bohu. And I know my writing's brilliant, so you can all read this here. And this is about filling the form. It was empty. So these days, so God, first three days, he forms everything. And the next three days, he fills each space according to its kind. This is a fascinating pattern. So as the ancient Israelites started to read through this and started to think about this, they came to this, this interesting thing that, what, how do we make sense of this? There's this heavy, heavy emphasis, obviously, on the idea of seven, that there are seven days, that seven days happens in this. Um, and that on the seventh day, every other day, there's evening and morning, and then it's the day. But on the seventh day, if you notice, it finishes without ever saying there's evening and morning, that the seventh day is a day that never ends. 
And so they started putting all this together. There's these patterns, and there's this number seven, and there's this day that never ends. In the first three days, they don't even have a son. So how do we make sense of the fact that if the first three days never had a son, the last day has no ending, no evening and morning, maybe these seven days are meant to communicate not just the technical of how God created in his work week, but maybe they're meant to create, communicate something deeper, something more. So they started to count And this is where it gets weird. You ready? If you read the first verse in Hebrew, guess how many words there are? Seven words in the first verse. If you count the number of letters in the first verse, there are 28 letters. That's seven times four. If you count the number of words in the second verse, there are 14 words. That's seven times two. If you count the number of times the word earth is used, it's 21 times, 7 times 3. If you look at the number of times the word God is used, it is 35 times, 7 times 5. The seventh paragraph has 35 words in it, 7 times 5. The phrase, it was so, occurs 7 times. And God saw occurs 7 times. The phrase, it was good, occurs 7 times. And if you have enough time on your hand to count every single word in the passage, you will discover that there are 469 words in this passage, which is 7 times 67. (sighs) Maybe it's just me. But I'm starting to think that somebody wants us to pay attention to the number seven here. Oh, man. In Hebrew, the number seven has this idea of consummation or fullness or perfection. What do you think God is trying to say to us when he says seven, 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 seven? Every pattern of seven you can think about in this passage. What does Elohim This one God who is in plural form want us to know about this sevenfold good creation. What a fascinating way to explain the origin of all things to all people in all times. This begs all kinds of questions when we start to see these forms and patterns and numbers. Like, how do we read this? Do we read this as a technical description of how God created this universe? Are these patterns and numbers literal or are they literary or are they somehow both? Get it? You could be literal and literary at the same time. Is this just something to teach us about the excellency of God that we think on the perfection of creation, 7777? Or is this to literally tell us how he did it? Or is this somehow both? And there's a, there's a word of caution I want to give right here. If we believe, if we start in the beginning, God, if we have this notion of Elohim, this one creator God who's in plural form, he can do whatever he wants. That's my big theological idea for the day, okay? Just take that home. If you sit with that, that one will be good enough for you. Can he create the universe in seven literal days? Yes, he can. His name is God. And can he take 13.75 billion years to use processes that he oversees to show his glory? Yes, he can. His name is God. He can do whatever he wants. So we have to come here with humility, knowing that we 
cannot explain everything. I just want to make two observations to close this day out that help us shape how we should read this text and maybe think about it from a different perspective as we come into it. And the first one is very, very simply this. Creation is a personal expression of a personal God. In this text, there is no such thing as natural Did you hear that? In Hebrew, there is no word for spiritual. What do you mean? Do you like, what? Are they just unspiritual people? No, everything is spiritual for them. There is no distinction between natural and spiritual. It's meaningless to say that something is purely natural, mechanistic, apart from God. For them, they, they saw God. They saw spirit. They saw supernatural causes in Everything in the sun shining and the rain pouring and the vegetation growing. They saw supernatural spiritual realities in everything. So when we read this text, we see a God who's hovering so close. You can feel his breath. He's actively creating. He's enjoying his creation. He says, oh, that's good. That's good. That is so good. We find a God who's not far and away, but he's actually coaxing life out of the land. Let the land produce. And it was so. Let, 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 let birds fill the air. He's like coaxing things out of it. He's intimately in and through and under all things. If we ask the text, all right, but scientifically here, let's set this aside. How does God create? We get a very unscientific answer from this text. How does God create all things? It says, he speaks. So well, what do you mean? Does God have like a giant mouth and vocal cords and like the vibrations come out and then they create things? And No, nobody believed that. Ancient people didn't believe that. Nobody ever believed that. But we know that that is a poetic device. This is poetry. And when God speaks, it's his self-expression, it's his intention, it's his will. That God merely has to will something. That the voice of the Lord is heard all around us, it's seen. It's actually a creating force, reality. Oh, better yet, it's a person. If we push this and ask, but how? What processes, mechanisms did God use to create the universe? And we search the scriptures. God, how did you make the universe? How did you actually form the light in the sky and the sea and the land? How did you do this? The only place we come close to an actual scientific answer is the end of the book of Job. And you know the answer is? Where were you when I formed the foundations of the earth? Who are you, oh man? Do you think you could even possibly comprehend this? That's what God says to Job and to us. If I told you, you wouldn't understand it anyways. It's like trying to teach a dog calculus. It doesn't work. Who are you to think that you could possibly comprehend how God creates something out of nothing? When we come here, here to Genesis 1, seems to have very little concern with telling us how God created, but it is ultimately concerned with who God, who created the universe and why. Who and why. Those are different types of questions. So if you ask this text, where did everything come from? It's going to say everything, trees, rocks, stars, tiny yelping dogs, black holes, everything exists 
by God and for God, that everything exists to reveal his glory. It is ultimately an expression of him. So Psalm chapter, uh, Psalm 19 describes this. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. Like if you were to have eyes to see his goodness, his character, his invisible attributes are all around us. His creation is unfolding his greatness. So get this. If everything exists to reveal God, black holes, 350,000 types of beetles, exotic quarks, plate tectonics, everything you can imagine right now exists to reveal God, then, therefore, we should see God in everything. Maybe, maybe... A bigger point of this text is not how God created it, but maybe the point is that God's signature, his goodness, his beauty, his invisible attributes are crying out everywhere in creation so that you might know him and worship him. Like this is the moment, you know, the moment. This is the moment when you look out over the ocean or you climb to the top of the mountain or you look up at the night sky or you look at your newborn child. This is that moment when you know that you know that you know that life and creation itself feels deeply personal. That beauty has a purpose. That butterflies are beautiful for a reason. That orchids reach out and they're grand explosion for a reason. That, that kids laugh and holding hands and drinking a cup of coffee expresses the glory and goodness of God. So get this. If scientific inquiry is the study of personal creation of a personal creator, the end of science is not independence, it's not power, it's not control. The right and proper end of science, according to Genesis chapter 1, is worship. Worship. So the first thing we see in this text is that creation is a personal expression of a personal God. And the second thing is this. It's a song. Now, I might be overstating this just a little bit. But there's no denying that this is poetic. There's patterns, rhythms, artistry that are not even close to accidental in here. That they help form the message itself. The pattern speaks to us just as much as the words. So so why... um, why is this important? Why, why do you listen to music? It's like, why do you go to a concert? Do you go to a concert so that, yes, I would, I would like to learn more about the, uh, the theory that cosmic background radiation marks the remains of a singularity caused by the space-time continuum? No! You go to a concert because you want to experience, you want to share the joy, the angst, the love, the hope, the experience of, of the artist. So, so Aristotle, he's uh, written one of the most brilliant treaties known to man on, on the study of love and friendship. His Nicomachean Ethics, it's, it's probably, it probably sets the bar of all books on that topic. Like his analysis of love and friendship might be the technically best description you've ever read. But here's the deal. When you're lonely, do you want to pull Aristotle off the shelf and open him up? Or do you want to sit with Adele and be like, hello, it's me. I was wondering. 
You choose Adele every time, I promise you. You know why? Because you're not just a brain. Do you get that? You are a whole person made in the image of God. And every bit of you needs to express something, needs to know something. It's not enough to know something cognitively. And Adele can say things that Aristotle can't touch in his treaty. Now, while this text is obviously full of very good information about God and creation, if you only read this text as a scientific fact sheet, you are missing the best part. So I've asked two people in our congregation to help us uh, explore specifically the relationship between literary context and interpretation. Jared and Sarah, if you're out there, would you come up and, and help us experience what this means? So... We're going to start over here with Jared Coyle. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to put a picture up. And I'm going to ask both of them to interpret this picture for you, okay? We're going to interpret that, all right? Ready when you are, Jared. Am I on? Okay. I was going to say the same thing, but I thought I'd just let Jared say it. By, by the way, did I mention Jared has a PhD in electrophysics? Now, now, Sarah, Sarah's got a little different perspective. Sarah, would you interpret this picture for us? I see the stars. I hear the rolling thunder. Thy power throughout the universe displayed. And sings my Sarah is classically trained opera singer. Now, here's the question. Jared and Sarah, um, which is true? Which is right? Which is better? 
And the question, like, the answer to that is, like, better for what? So, like, if I want to fly to Mars or create a telescope, I'm going to choose Jared. But if I want to experience, I want my soul to shake with the beauty and awesomeness of what God is doing around me, I will choose Sarah. I'm sorry, Jared. (laughs) Sorry. So, do we have to choose is the question. Can't we have both? So I want you to think about this. Let's reflect real quick on on why God might have written this as a song. Let's reflect on the power of music and poetry. What can a song do that a scientific text cannot do? And we have endless, endless examples of this. Um, My favorite contemporary example is, do you know what is the most viewed YouTube video in the history of the world? The one that seems to transcend language, culture, space. Yes! Gangnam style. Okay, so get this, get this. I checked yesterday. 2.75 billion with a B people have seen this. There's only, I checked, there's only 3.6 billion people with the internet in the world access to the internet. That means three out of every four people in the world have watched a Korean rapper pretend like he's riding the horse. All right? Now, here's, here's the, the great question we have to ask. Why? Why, dear Lord? <laughs> Is it because it's so rational and intellectually satisfying? No. I, I mean, 99% of the people who viewed that video do not even speak Korean. So why? Why do we listen? Why do we demand to listen to it on repeat? Because the song stirs something in us. Music captures our heart. It transcends people and times and places and culture. Now, not that I would compare Gangnam Style to the excellency and beauty of Genesis 1. I would not. But the point remains. Songs are the nearly perfect medium for speaking to all people and all times. It's almost perfect. Poetry, art, music is not somehow inferior to science or an analytical description. It's not. You sing because you want to express more, not less. You sing because you want to communicate something that can't be expressed in mere words. You sing because you want to communicate something that transcends time and place and scientific analysis. So have you ever noticed how much of the scripture is in poetic or song format? Huge sections, huge Because God wants to say something that our words fail to capture. So what? How does reading Genesis 1 as a song from a personal God personally revealing himself, a personal expression of a personal God, how does reading Genesis 1 as a song, how does that help us answer our scientific questions about the origin of the universe? Well, in one sense, sorry, I had to take that off. In one sense, hearing it as a song doesn't answer our questions. And maybe that's the point. Maybe if we knew at some deep, deep level who created us and why he created us, maybe that would be enough. Maybe that would tell us something that no scientific explanation or analysis could ever convey. So uh, my greatest teachers, my greatest theology teachers of all time are a nine-year-old little, or eight-year-old little girl and a seven-year-old little boy. 
You know what I mean, parents? There is something soul-shaking, like soul-shaping and shaking about having children. Like the first few months of their life, you really don't realize what you're in for. Like you think, oh, this is going to be beautiful and babies are cute and stuff. And then you realize that they steal your life. They take out your peace, your dignity, your quiet, your sanity. And yet, and yet, and yet, if you're a parent, you know, you know that as much as they terrorize you, Words cannot describe the love of a parent for a child. They can't. Jillian, our first one, she was a terror. <laughs> that baby, we, we, we were seriously, we, we thought that she was psychologically a mastermind from birth, trying to destroy us and dismantle us. All right, every two to three hours, she would wake us up for months on end, and, this, and then she would cry and cry and cry. And then, uh, you know, it's, there's some babies, like our second son, our second baby, a boy, he, he cried, and it was like one of those cute cooing cries, but not, not Gillian, no. Hers were like the, like nails on a chalkboard shrieking, like all the hair on your neck stands up type of baby cries that is just, you, you can't live with. And so, this went on for a few months, and sleep deprivation started to set in, and it started to get terrible, and we started to go insane. <laughs> and then just when we thought it couldn't get any worse, it did. It did, yeah. From, from like 7 to 11 every night, she went into this fit. We called it the crazy hours, the witching hours, where she would just, she wouldn't stop crying, this shrieking, terrible crying. So we, we finally learned, like, one way to get her to stop was to bounce. And we're like, so we'd walk around the, so day after day, hour after hour, we'd bounce around our little, little apartment at the time, trying to bounce her, trying to get her to stop, trying the happiest baby on the block hold and all these tricky holds to try and get her to just stop and fall asleep and, I mean, one night in particular, we were doing that, and it's like three hours into it, and like Jenny is like literally crying, looks at me, and it's like, how long do we do this? And I'm like, I guess until we die. <laughs> and then, and then I learned a trick. About, and I'm not joking, about three months into this, I learned a trick. If we lay her down on her crib, she'd shriek and shriek and shriek. But if I would come up to her crib and put my face like right up next to her, close enough she could feel my breath, and I would sing, doo-wop. I would literally lean over and sing, do-do-do-do-do. Good night, sweetheart. Well, it's time to go. Do-do-do-do-do. And that little girl would stop. Her eyes would become wide, and then she would get sleepy and fall asleep. Now, I didn't solve her problems, and I didn't explain to her why her fears and pains were irrational. I didn't reason with her at all. What I did is I sang over my little girl, and she knew that her father loved her. And that was enough. She could rest in that. What if? What if this story isn't trying to answer our questions at all? What if it isn't trying to reason with us at all? What if all this is, all this is, is a poem? All this is, is a song? What if all this is, is a father who's so close, he's over us, we can feel his breath, who's singing over us? I don't know about you. I can rest in that. 